Welcome to the People's Historians Podcast with the Zen Education Project, coordinated by Teaching for Change and Rethinking Schools. I'm Jesse Hagopian, a co-editor of Rethinking Schools and host of this series on Teach the Black Freedom Struggle. In this episode, I'm speaking with journalist Linda Villarosa about her 2022 Pulitzer Prize finalist book, Under the Skin, The Hidden Toll of Racism on American Lives and on the Health of Our Nation, where she exposes the persistent racism in the U.S. healthcare system. Best-selling author Clint Smith said of the book, quote, Via Rosa has written a book that will transform how you understand the relationship between race and medicine, one that makes clear the connection between our history and our health. So let's jump in. I am so utterly thrilled to be here as an educator myself, as um, a person who loved school so much as a kid that I never missed and I kept going and getting more <laughs> education and degrees and things and fellowships. Um, as the parent of two children who um, I, I dragged through but they were very happy through years and years and years of public education and college. And also just have so much respect for your profession and all that you do right now, especially um, to tell children, to teach children, and make sure that they understand the truth. Mm, that's beautiful, especially right now when teachers are going through so much. We really appreciate that. And, you know, as someone, you know, my mom's in public health and my wife works in public health, and I just can't tell you how much your work has meant to me and, and to our family. It's really wonderful to get to be in conversation with you this evening. Thank and you. Yeah, and I wanted to start off by talk, asking you this about your book, Under the Skin, because I think it is not only an indispensable guide for understanding health, especially the disparate health outcomes for black people and, and black women, but I think also for developing a method for understanding how to analyze any social problem. The, the journey that, that you take us on in this book from your uh, individual understanding of social ills to a systemic understanding, I think is really re revelatory. You write about how as health editor in Essence Magazine, you firmly believe that quote, if we black Americans know better, we do better, right? And you write that you approached health through a, a Booker T. Washington lens of individual self-improvement, imagining, quote, a trickle, kind of trickle-down effect from health information. But then you developed a different way to understand why, bla why black people live sicker and die quicker, as you put it. And I just wanted you to begin by telling us about how you developed your understanding of the health systems in this country. Um, well, I am a person who has a lot of compassion and empathy for people who um, learn things slowly, because <laughs> that's how I um, learn things. And I was, you know, Essence was a magazine, is a magazine that is firmly grounded in self-help and believing that our mission um, as editors and writers there was really to um, help the race 
one individual at a time. And that also matched my own background from a family of strivers from, you know, who came from the great migration to Chicago um, and, and sort of that was part of my own personality. But as I began to see, uh, my eyes became more open little by little. I think one of the times was um, meeting Dr. Harold Freeman, who taught me that, wait a minute, this is not, you know, I thought, oh, people who, Black people who are sick are those who either don't know um, how to take care of themselves or are extremely poor. And those are the only two kinds. And, um, you know, if I work on educating the people who read the magazine, and then we all look and put our wrap our arms around those of the others who were not doing as well financially and economically, um, then the, everything would change. And Dr. Freeman was took me aside and said, no, <laughs> that's not correct. Then I started seeing that it wasn't just the poorest people, uh, Black people in America who were suffering from mm -hmm. um, health, poor health outcomes. It was even middle class and upper middle class people. Then I saw my own family member um, being treated, my father being treated so badly by the healthcare system that he believed in. And as I got learned more, I went to public health school, I just got more and more politicized. And but honestly, I don't want to make it seem like I'm some kind of like genius. <laughs> when I was writing the book, I realized, oh, this is how this worked in my head. But it was only in putting it down that the through line became really, really coherent for me. Yeah. Yeah. You you really do a powerful job of showing how. Uh, racism impacts black health independent of other variables of class and and other variables and that's just a vital lesson and I appreciate your vulnerability in that discussion showing that you didn't always have it figured out because I think it helps all of us uh, take that next step in understanding how systems work and you were vulnerable again in, in chapter three in a story that you shared about how you didn't think maternal mortality was a major problem in the U.S. And you thought that if it was a problem, it was reserved for uh, for poor countries or people living in extreme poverty here. And then you met, uh, well, you deepened a conversation with Katrina Anderson, uh, a lawyer with the Center for Reproductive Rights in New York. Can you tell us? about that story and what you discovered? Well, I play soccer um, in an intergenerational um, <laughs> group on the weekend. Um, and Katrina uh, also plays in that group. And she was telling me, I just started working at the New York Times Magazine as a contributing writer. And she said, don't you work for the Times? I want to tell you about this, this, what's going on in maternal mortality in America. And I was really thinking, just can you talk to me later? I just need some exercise and some fresh air here in Brooklyn. And she insisted on telling me that we were the only country where the number of um, birthing people who die or almost die as a result of pregnancy and childbirth is rising. So I was thinking, that's hard to believe, but America's messed up. So, okay. And then she said, but it's really Black women who have it the worst. So I think I thought still, um, okay, we always have it the worst. And she said, you know, black women are three to four times more likely to die or almost die related to pregnancy and childbirth. And in New York, it's worse. It's six to eight times. And I thought, well, 
New York is a really unequal place. I live in Brooklyn. I work in Harlem. I get that. And then she said, a Black um, woman, birthing person with an advanced degree is more likely to die or almost die than a white woman with an eighth grade education. And that's when I stopped. And I said, what? I don't, I'm having trouble believing that. And then I said, I promise, send me whatever you have on that. And she was associated with um, the Black Mamas Matter Alliance. And I got their report. And that's when I started really digging into to that. And I had heard that maybe even 15 years ago from another study, but it was sort of an isolated study about educated Black parents and infant mortality. But to have the this data right there and to think, Education doesn't protect us, and also the disparity is worse at the more educated level. In other words, the, where the only difference, if you think, if you know, use education as a proxy for the good things that should keep you healthy during pregnancy and childbirth, including access to health care, then why would the disparity be worse when mm -hmm. race was the only factor? And that's when I got really curious and started seeing things very differently. Yeah. I'm so glad you did start seeing things differently and got curious. That New York Times piece, I remember when that came out and the huge impact it came that came with it and the conversations that were started um about structural racism was was vital. Uh thank you for that work. And I also wanted to ask you about some of the stuff you write about in Under the Skin, where you detail many examples of medical experimentation on Black people without their consent. So you write about Henrietta Lacks and the Tuskegee syphilis experiment that that um, many might be aware of. Um, and by the way, I, I co-edited a book called Teaching for Black Lives, and we have a great lesson in that book to help science teachers uh, teach about Henrietta Lacks. So educators should check that assignment out. But the case that you wrote about that I'd never heard of was about uh, Minnie Lee Ralph and her younger sister, Mary Alice. And this happened to them when they were just 14 and 12. Can you tell us about who they were and how their Supreme Court case has changed the country and, and also about where they are now. That was a really powerful discussion in your book. Well, um, the Ralph family, it was um, two parents and six children, came from rural Alabama to Montgomery. So they were at the tail end of the Great Migration when people weren't necessarily going to the north um, from farms or from rural areas. They were going to cities in the south. And this family came to Montgomery with nothing. And the parents had no education and couldn't read and write. So they were living in a field. And there was a Black social worker, Miss Bly, went and um, she got assigned their case. And she really was struck by the two youngest, younger girls. They were 12 and 14. And um, they needed everything, you know, the family needed everything, but these girls really had no education and she wanted to get, so she wanted to get them in school, get them in medical care. One of them was, the younger one was disabled. So the family went into public housing, they got money from the government to survive and um, they got health care through the public health system. But the three daughters got
got on the radar of the public health system through, you know, because of their age and because they were black. And because at the time, the officials in the city were seeing so many black people come into Montgomery and in Birmingham and in other southern cities. And what they were doing was um, sterilizing um, young black girls and teenagers. So the um, nurses came to the uh, Ralph House the girl in 1973 and um, took the two younger ones and sterilized them. The third one, the older sister, Katie, escaped by hiding. She uh, she uh, got away and hid and then um, told their mom and the social worker what happened. So they sterilized the two girls. The social worker felt, Miss Bly felt really guilty because she had put the um, family on the radar. So she went to the um, Southern Poverty Law Center where it was brand, it was new then, and um, Julian Bond was the president of the board, and they got really interested in this case to sue for sterilizing these um, two young girls without inf the informed consent of their parents. So the the case um, became a lightning rod. There were articles about it at the time in the set in the early seventies. Um, they went. The family came to Washington um, and testified to the Congress. And they won the case. So that meant that you cannot sterilize anyone in America without their their informed consent or if they're minors without their parents' informed consent. But the Ralphs through they there was a um a case so they could get money, but they um didn't win that case. So a couple of years ago, I re had read about the Ralphs. I decided to find them. So I went, I mean, I spent a year looking for them. And then by, I had given up and I was in Montgomery and by happenstance, I was um, at, with a friend helping her teach a class on parenting just as a favor. And I noticed one of the people had a name card that said Debbie Ralph. And I said, this is crazy, but I've been looking for these two women. They should wow. be in their 60s now. Um, the, uh, Minnie Lee and Mary Alice. She said, oh, that's my aunties. Do you want their no number? way. <laughs> I got their number. I met them. I interviewed them. Um, I put them in my book. The story got that part got excerpted by the New York Times magazine. They were on the cover. And then, okay, now this is, I haven't even barely talked about this part. So I get a phone call, you know, they, they live in public housing together. And there are these two, you know, elderly ladies, and they're not doing great. But they and they don't quite understand the sacrifice. I mean, they understand their sacrifice, but not what changed in America. So I get I'm after the story comes out it's on the cover of The New York Times magazine. I get this email from this woman in Seattle who is like so nice. And she's saying, you know, I'm um, a person who benefited from generational wealth. And my husband works in the tech industry. And I want to do something for the Ralph sisters. I want to give them $25,000. So I was like, what? So I said, give me your phone number, you know, in case it was a scam. So I talked <laughs> to her and I said, this is all I ask. I said, okay, I, I believe you. One question. $25,000 each? Yes. Mm. So she, I ended up connecting with a um, nonprofit organization in Montgomery. They got the money. I saw them last month and they bought a house. So they own wow. their own house. They got out of public housing. And now they called me the other day and they said they want to get a dog. <laughs> so, oh, that's great. <laughs> I did not that. know that. Oh, yes. that's beautiful. Well, well done. That. That really warms my heart to know that follow-up that they got something because they 
are owed a lot more. And they never got an official apology from anyone yet, but we're still hoping that someone in the government that sterilized them in our public health service will actually apologize. Yeah, no doubt. Thank you for sharing their story with us all and supporting them that way. I wanted to ask you another question. You titled chapter five of the book, Where You Live Matters. And you write, quote, from foul water in Flint, Michigan, to deadly chemicals that have poisoned a large corridor of Louisiana known as Cancer Alley, black and poor communities shoulder a disproportionate burden of the nation's pollution. So I was hoping you could speak about this concept of environmental racism and the impact on black health. Well, I wrote a story very early on um, for Essence about environmental racism and environmental justice. It was like in the, the, maybe the late 80s, like 1989. And then I wrote a story for the New York Times Magazine in like, I guess 2019 or 2020. And I was shocked by how little had changed as far as black people, black communities being, and other communities of color, but especially black communities being um, near a polluting facility, whether it's a refinery, it's a landfill, it's a dump, um, it's an incinerator. And black Americans are 75% more likely to be, you know, to live in fence line communities. So that means that they're very close to this polluting facility. So that alone, if your air is not clean, if your water, as in Flint and Jackson, Mississippi, is not clean, then you can't be healthy. Um, and I think, you know, in public health, um, uh, we call it the social determinants of health is, you know, where you live matters is the, you know, that's what the social determinants of health are, whether your community is healthy. And I think the misunderstanding about it is that we as Black people are doing something wrong, where when you really look at this, sometimes the community came first, and then the polluting facility came in, as what happened with my first story. In the second story, the, in, the refinery was already there, it meant that the community around the refinery was redlined. So that meant people couldn't get mortgages because it wasn't a very nice or healthy place to live. So that the city of Philadelphia put public housing as the fence line community. So that meant black people and sometimes other people of color, but there mostly black people lived in public housing. They ended up near this refinery, which was making them ill over time. Many of them dug themselves out, got out of public housing, but they wanted to live near the community where they were from. So they ended up still in a fence line community, now in homes that they often owned. And um, so those are the two, two of the things that happen. But too often we're blamed for doing something wrong when it's actually these, these um, you know, facilities and um, industry that is taking advantage of us or that we end up being located near. And that just has a profound effect on our health. Yeah, no doubt. And to compound the problem in our schools, there's just so little education about environmental racism, climate change and its impact disproportionately on BIPOC folks. Um, it's just so outraging to see the, the level of crisis that's facing 
all of humanity and and especially the most marginalized and just how little there is in corporate textbooks to help our students understand this. So I'm so glad you are bringing that to the forefront in your work. And I wanted to ask you another question because right now in the midst of these attacks on anti-racist education and all these bills that are being passed across the country to ban educators from being able to teach the truth about racism and black history. One of the main reasons they say they, they got to ban all this stuff is because it's shaming white kids. And then if we teach classes about racism, it will be very bad for, for white kids. They'll be shamed, right? And I think your book does a really amazing service for for everyone to help us understand uh, the way that, as you title chapter seven, discrimination and ill treatment can harm everybody, right? And in the chapter you write, quote, worst off are those at the intersections of race and poverty and America punishes disadvantages black, disadvantaged black people, but our country judges all the poor uh, including white people. So I was hoping you could talk about how racist narratives about health end up being detrimental to the health of all working class and poor white people too. One of the researchers that's been foundational for me is Arlene Geronimus, who um, coined the term weathering. And she has a new book out too. It's called Weathering. Um, and it's really amazing. She's a professor at the University of Michigan. And weathering is the concept that says if you are someone who has who has to fight against discrimination or fight against ill treatment in your day-to-day -day life, so it could be because of poverty, it be, could be because of racism, it could be because of homophobia, it could be because of whatever, but it's the long-term effect of having to fight every day just to survive in an unjust society weathers your body. And that weathering is a kind of premature aging. And it's the same way that a rock is eroded by water um, or a house is um, battered by a storm. But it also speaks to re kind of a kind of resilience to say the house weathered the storm. So I love that um, sort of dual meaning. Oh, I love that. that. It's very, it's positive. Um, and what I asked Dr. Geronimus, because most of her work centers in Black people, and she she made her name around infant mortality and how battling back racism hurts um, black people's, black women's birthing people's bodies and can lead to maternal mortality and infant mortality. So I said to her, well, is weathering a black thing? And she said, no, it can be for anyone who's ill-treated. And she said, some of the people who are Ill, most ill-treated are the poor white people because they are the ones who are told, well, you're white and you couldn't even um, make it. And I thought to myself while I'm writing this book, where can I go to see what that looks like? So during the pandemic, no one in my family thought I should be doing this. I drove, I got my little Prius and drove to West Virginia from Brooklyn. And I ended up because there was a, there still is, but it, at the time there was a HIV outbreak because of opioid use that had kind of turned into injecting heroin use. And this, there was this, you know, sort of like crazy seeming like a, the bygone times um, epidemic in um, West Virginia. So I went to go see who, what happened there. 
And I saw people, I mean, it's a very white state, people being treated so, so badly and in such dire straits. But I also noticed how old they looked. And I, everybody I asked, you know, like I thought to myself when I'm interviewing people, I thought, I'm going to guess their age. And I would guess in my head 70, you know, 75. And it'd be like, I'm 50, I'm 48. Mm. So because of being so ill-treated in a, you know, they worked in an industry that was, you know, not not um, around as much anymore, which is coal mining, which is difficult. Many of them were hurt. Many of them um, were addicted to um, opioids, which were pumped into that state in obscene numbers by pharmaceutical companies. Then it was kind of cleaned up, but but they were left addicted without treatment and they were blamed. And I interviewed so many people and all the fears that my family had, it's like, don't go down there. Are you crazy? Um, what I saw were people in such dire straits and that, you know, I just felt a sort of like being kind to them because I felt really bad for them yeah. and how they were treated and how they were blamed for their own situation. And that to me, you know, sort of said, oh, weathering does harm everybody. Yes. That's such an important lesson for us to flush out, not just in health and in, in every way, right? That's the way that they use racism, hyper attack black people, but then it drives everybody's standard of living down. And that's the basis on which I think we can build the kind of solidarity that we would need to change the healthcare system, the education system, the housing systems, right? That we would all benefit from less oppression. Uh, and your book really drives that point home. Um, and you, were, you mentioned you were traveling that time during the pandemic, I wanted to ask you about the pandemic because um, it's been really hard on educators and on on our students and on their families. Um, you know, I myself got COVID in in August and I still have long COVID. I've been pretty much continually dizzy from from that moment forward. It's just really taken its toll on a, on a, a lot of us and. We have a lesson by a high school teacher that asked students to consider who is to blame for the COVID-related deaths, with racism and capitalism being two of the defendants. <laughs> uh, and in the afterward, you write about the ways systemic racism showed up in the ways the medical establishment approached the COVID-19 pandemic. So I was hoping you could say more about that. Well, I think it was very interesting because I got asked to do that, do a panel early on in COVID, um, in the COVID pandemic, which was sort of like COVID does COVID. It was, I remember the title was COVID-19 doesn't discriminate. And what I did was say, I'm not going to be on the panel unless you change that name, because that's not true. Any virus. And I, you know, grew up sort of like in as a journalist studying and reporting about HIV AIDS, many of the same people, it's also a virus, so many of the same people were, you know, studying kind of viruses and um, those kinds of diseases. So all of us were sort of like when COVID happens, like, oh no, this is going to discriminate. Hmm. This, these kinds of diseases, infectious diseases do discriminate against, you know, people who are the most marginalized. So the ones that 
um, didn't weren't on Zoom at work, but actually out working in communities that didn't get testing right away or and, and definitely didn't get uh, the vaccine right away. Also, who were harmed by the system, the healthcare system already. And then that meant that they don't maybe believe in the healthcare system, are afraid of it, have been hurt by it, and then don't want to get tested or vaccinated because of fear. And fear that is that makes sense because of hurt that has happened to them. And so right away, many of us were, when, when it was sort of, oh yeah, COVID doesn't discriminate, it was, yes, it does. And people under the radar, even I remember it was like 2020 in March when I started thinking about this and writing about it early on, there were underground conversations of Black people in public health and people, other people of color that were saying, this is going to be a huge problem for Black people. And it ended up being that way. The other problem was the intersection of environmental racism. So in places mm. where, that were already polluted, this was a problem of the lungs. If your lungs were damaged by, because you lived near um, an incinerator, you live near a refinery, you, you're, the air isn't um, good in your community, um, then you're going to have worse COVID hospitalization and higher death rates. And that happened right away in Cancer Alley. I know that um, one of our, one of you here said you were from New Orleans. And, um, you know, I thought about that because I remember the study came out, it was April, 2020, and it made the intentional link about people who live in communities that where the air is bad, have worse COVID outcomes. And then, you know, I just thought, oh, no, this is, again, Black people who are so much more likely to live in communities where the air isn't clean. Yeah. No, that's a really important link you make, you make there. Uh, and I just wish that was part of the mainstream discourse. And instead, each problem is siloed as separate. And as if we could solve one without addressing the other, uh, and you you just synthesize them so so beautifully in your writing, uh, and you write really powerful powerfully about the problem of systemic racism in healthcare is not new, and and how it dates back to the period of en enslavement. So I thought um, ask you one more question before we we. Uh, allow teachers to to break and meet each other and discuss a little bit more before we come back. But I just wanted to ask you about um, how healthcare was treated to, for enslaved people and what the impact of these vicious medical experiments that were being done during the period of enslavement as well. Well, I think it's um, in it's complicated issue because at, in, in some ways we had, as enslaved people, we had really good health care. We were taken care of in some ways because our bodies were worth money. And so it was like, oh, we have to keep these people alive. We have to make sure that they're um, well enough to work for free. We have to make sure that they have children because that um, gives us more free labor. The second thing is we had our own health care that um, African enslaved people brought over from the motherland, um, and we had our own kinds of medicine to keep each other um, healthy. There were um, midwives, Black midwives were taking care of everyone, including the white people, and they were some of the best medical practitioners at the time. Um, the other, but on the alternatively, what happened was myths about us, black, uh, black enslaved people were going around in order to justify enslavement. And one of them was the idea that we had these 
um, inferior bodies so that we had worse um, lung function, which made um, make, makes no sense now, but in, it was a myth that was um, pushed forward by scientists, by doctors at medical schools, at in medical journals. The idea that we have poor lung function and working in the fields actually strengthens our lungs. And even worse and more sinister is the idea that we have really high pain tolerance. And I remember um, I was part of the 1619 Project, and when the book came out, they brought in a um, professor from Harvard to work with me. And what she said, you know, I had looked into this false idea pushed by medical people um, at the time, mostly Southern doctors, many of whom were slave owners, um, that we had this superhuman pain tolerance. And I was calling it a myth. And what she said was, be careful. Don't just call it a myth. It is more than a myth. It was something that is patently false, but that was you know, forced into the conversation, forced into medical books, and actually forced into history um, by people who were considered experts. So that's mm. different from just this uh, false notion. It was actually something that was um, trying, it was theorized as being true. And um, I was, my eyes were very much opened by that work I did on the 1619 Project. And thinking about how those myths that were left over from 400 years ago still remain in medical mm -hmm. training and practice to this day. And um, that was, to me, the most heartbreaking part of it. Yeah, I want to pick back up on that after the break and talk more about how these deliberately false narratives are used to construct race. Linda, uh, I wanted to ask you about the conversation that you have in your book. It's just a fascinating study, really, in the social construction of race. I think you, you cite studies about how people believe all kinds of wild ideas about biological difference, differences between white and black people, including that black people don't feel as much pain as you as you touched on. And that's something that I really... Uh, found interesting because I also organized with professional athletes and, it, you know, there's been some important studies that come out about how black NFL players are put back into the game a lot sooner than white players after they get injured because these myths that started during slavery are continuing to, to exist. So if you could tell us about some of the many misconceptions about biological differences between people uh, of, of the so-called races and what the implications are for how black people are treated in the medical system. Well, I think the one that is really the most harmful is the idea that we have the um, sort of superhuman tolerance against pain. And then when we are, we go into the medical system, we are under medicated, you know, for pain. And it really showed up for me, the, the way it showed up worse was um, during COVID. In 2021, there was this doctor named, physician named Dr. Susan Moore, black woman physician in Indiana. She um, went into the hospital for COVID. She was really ill and she was in pain. And um, she's a doctor. 
And so she asked for, first of all, she um, talked about how she should, what the protocol was for treatment, and she was shut down. Then she asked for some pain medication because she had something was um, really, really hurting in her shoulder, I think her neck and shoulder. And she was treated as though she were drug seeking. Um, and she didn't, you know, I think eventually she might have gotten the pain medication, but not at the beginning. And then um, she ended up leaving that hospital. She died. She ended up dying of this. And when um, the hospital investigated, you know, looked into her because she made a Facebook Live video. So she had a picture of herself on, on in bed in the hospital, tubes in her nose, telling this story. Um, mm -hmm. and she said throughout, this is how black people get killed. This is, that's how I found, found out about her. So then they did an investigation of this, and they found out that the some of the hospital staff was intimidated by her medical knowledge. So that is saying so many things. One that you know we we shouldn't be listened to, and we're shut down when we give you know express our legitimate concerns. We as human beings know more about our bodies than anyone else, and we should be. And but if you're a physician, you also know more about your own body. Plus, you know about you know the treatment and protocol. Um, but also the idea that, you know, it seems like a through line from that old 400 years ago, um, Black people can endure huge amounts of pain in order to justify this system of slavery that is keeping our country afloat, um, is making people rich. Um, and the through line to today is that there are studies where medical students and um, residents were asked about some of these myths, and 40% believed at least one of the myths. And the myths include, are, do Black people have thicker skin than white people? Um, do Black people have higher pain tolerance? Do Black people blood coagulate differently? These are all not real, but 40% of not you know, doctors, but the next generation believed at least one of these myths, which means that this um, idea has, there's a through line right to today's medical practice and training. Yeah, yeah. it's, it, it really was staggering to hear that it's not just the general public that have these myths, it's the people who are charged with providing health care that also hold these myths, and that that they're reproduced in medical schools, that inaccurate information was even being taught. Just that, that was uh, eye-opening for me. But it not just was, is. <laughs> right, 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 right. Yes. Well, I was speaking at a Columbia School of Nursing a, a couple months ago, and there was a um, assistant professor who stood up and she talked about the medical textbook. Uh, you know, we're not talking about around the way university. This is Columbia. Um, nursing school, and she held up her textbook, and she showed that she was crossing out the things that were outdated in the book. And I was like in shock. And it was some of the, you know, some of these myths. One of them is, I think, around kidney function. So that Black people, white people have different kidney function. It's based on the false idea that Black people have um, uh, more muscle mass as a group. Obviously, uh, you can't see my little tiny skinny arm, but I do not have a lot of muscle mass, okay? <laughs> so the idea that Black people have more muscle mass, thus 
we should have a different kidney function reading. And there's a, there's a race correction. I just had one. I had my kidney test and I saw the race correction. It was like, this is your reading. If you're black, this is your reading. If you're white or, and plus it just black and white, it left out a whole lot of other people. Um, and the black was circled for me. And I just thought this is so ridiculous that these, you know, this sort of race correction that's based on something false um, from the past still exists in modern medicine. Yeah. Well, I think you just touched on Matt's question in the chat. He said, growing up, I was told that black people had longer, stronger, and better muscles than white people. That's a myth too, right? <laughs> well, certainly some black people <laughs> have long, strong muscles, but you, as a, the, the um, problems come when you assume um, that the whole group of whatever you're talking about all has this thing. So clearly black people do not as a group have lower lung function, which is, you know, leftover from enslavement. And I remember there's a race correction on the spirometer, which is a medical device that measures lung function. And I remember thinking, I grew up in Denver, Colorado. So that's the mile high city. I ran track. I'm like, have great lung function. I'm the Serena Williams of lung function. <laughs> right on. But my, I, I still want to ask my doctor, when I had a spirometer reading several years ago, I wonder if she flipped the switch and did the race correction. So that means it, you, it, doesn't, take a, it doesn't take into account of individual people. It's just looking at you as a, rate, as a, a member of a race. And that is bad medicine. No doubt. No doubt. Um, and I, I have, there's another question that came in here about how does the myth theory that black people are not as knowledgeable or intelligent as white people, how did that get started? And what does that have to do with our conversation? Well, I think it's the same thing. You're trying to, if during enslavement, which, you know, lasted centuries, you're trying to say that this group of people deserves to not have full rights. They deserve to be um, tortured, to be treated badly, to be to worked from sunup to sundown with no payment. Their children can be taken away from them. Um, their spouses can be, you know, or their loved ones can be separated from them. All the, we can whip them and beat them and lynch them um, under the idea that something's different about them, including their intelligence. They uh, don't have the same feelings of love um, and of caring. So all of these are myths that were supporting this um, capitalism. It was supporting um, slavery, which was really bolstering up our country and making many, many people in the South and all over the country very wealthy. Yeah, I think, yeah, there, wherever there's money to be made off of it, you'll see them propagate these, these master narratives that benefit white supremacy for sure. Um, there's a question that came in about how do we challenge this inequitable health system that is uh, infected with structural racism through and through. And throughout the book, I think you write about grassroots activists and doulas and black medical students and patients who have organized to fight against systemic racism in the healthcare system. I really appreciated that you didn't leave it with 
all the attacks and the oppression, but also showed the resistance that's going on at, at every level. I was inspired by your stories of activism in the Black Mamas Matter Alliance and the, the Birthmark Doula Collective. And then a story near the end uh, touched me because, uh, you know, I'm in Seattle and I was glad to hear you tell the story of Naomi Nick's, uh, Nick. I think it's Nijinsky. I think okay. Nikinsky. Yeah. Yeah, um, Nikinsky. Yes. So she yeah. challenged that the, the kidney function um, question. And what I love is I, and that is going to change for sure. That is in the process of changing some of the um, it has already been um, stricken from some um, medical textbooks. And that is something that it will, we won't be seeing soon. But um, I'm going to say two months ago, I was at a medical school. And um, after I gave a lecture, two young black medical students came up to me and said that they walked out of their classroom. They had walked out recently because the the professor was teaching the kidney, the EGFR it's called, the idea that black people should have a race correction because we have more muscle mass. Thus, it, our you know kidney function is different. And they got angry and they pushed back against the professor. And which is scary when you're in medical school and you're, you know, medical school's hard, you're the lowest rung of, you know, the professor is everything. And it was in, and the professor just said, well, it's in the medical textbook. And so what they said was, okay, you've got two people. One is a skinny dude named Barack Obama, who's black. And one is a big old guy who's really muscular. And his name is Arnold Schwarzenegger. So how could, you know, that doesn't make sense. And then the professor got mad, pointed to the textbook. They walked out. It created this kind of change and conversation at the school. And I, I, it was funny because I was with them um, at the school all day. And I noticed that everywhere I went, they went, you're going to lunch. We'll go with you. And I realized that was really scary for them. And they just wanted to be near me because I was just like, I'm so glad you did that. And I just wrapped my arms around them to, you know, in figuratively to support them. And I think that's what we have to do because I do see um, students, especially I'm a college professor. So I see these very activist students trying to change, trying to make a difference, pushing back against us as professors and administrators. And um, I often get, um, you know, it really makes me happy. High school students will will send me a note and it's like, I was charged with interviewing someone and I want to interview you. So I want, and I always say yes, <laughs> right always, on. always, always to any high school student who wants to understand more. I always say yes. And so I'm impressed with and think that we really have to support um, young people or, I mean, not necessarily young, anyone who is trying to change the system and make a difference and push back against ideas and structures that no longer make sense. I have just one more question, and I think it, it dovetails with another question that was in the chat. Somebody asked about the difference in treatment of the crack epidemic and the opioid epidemic. I think it was Sarah said that it really gets me heated. Do you ever see there being a reckoning? And that just made me think, um, not just 
that, but also what's the impact of mass incarceration uh, on black health as well? Well, I think, uh, you know, what happened with people who were addicted to crack was um, they were treated like criminals. And there was such a lack of sympathy, empathy, compassion, care for um, people who were addicted to this drug that was poured into communities, especially black communities. And um, they were incarcerated and given extreme sentences. And that was just unfair. And then when you saw the flip side, when, you know, I look, I discuss this in the book is to talk about when, you know, sort of showing the difference, even in journalism of sort of like, here's what crack looks like. And it's this dark, scary, dangerous people who need to be uncontrolled. And then on the opposite side, it's, you know, when the opioid crisis happened and it was mostly white people, the stories were it's, a, you know, someone who got addicted to pain medication after they got injured as an athlete or something like that, which is valid. But if the, you know, the, it was just unfair the way the coverage went um, and the way people were treated. And it just was racialized in, in a way that was really extremely unfair. I think you asked something else, but I always am bad with the two-part question. Oh, yeah. No, just following <laughs> from that, the, the impact on... Uh, mass incarceration on black health? Well, I think it, you know, I think when you lose a family member, uh, you know, to incarceration, to incarceration that's unfair, that's long, longer than it should be, um, you know, families break up, but it affects communities. So if you're in communities that are also suffering from sort of sanctioned segregation and discrimination, then you lose people from the community. You lose family members, you lose loved ones, you lose people who could, um, you know, bringing in money. Um, it affects, everything affects our health, you know, everything that happens in your community affects your health. And when it, any community that's devastated, whether it's from mass incarceration, whether it's from environmental injustice, or whether it's from segregation that is historical, um, you end up making people sicker. It's just period, because where you live matters. Yes. Wow. What a rich conversation. I can't thank you enough for giving us so many more perspectives and uh, just examples of how to build healthier communities and uh, oppose the structural racism in, in healthcare. It's been really fun getting a chance to talk with you this evening. Thank you so much. This is so great. I really have enjoyed this. Thank you for joining us today. This podcast is brought to you by the Zen Education Project, coordinated by Teaching for Change, and Rethinking Schools. Music provided by The Blue Tide, a Seattle-based acoustic blues duo of Daniel Rapport and J.D. Lenore, a.k.a. Jesse Hagopian. You can find them on Spotify, Apple Music, or wherever you get your music. <laughs>